Read along with me, if you would, please. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother. That's Exodus 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. And he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. That's Exodus 21, 17. But I say to you that whoever says to his father or his mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is a gift to God. Well, then you need not honor his father or mother. Well, thus you have made the commandment of God to no effect by your tradition, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they'll both fall into a ditch. Peter answered and he said to him, Explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that what enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Pray with me, would you please? Father, here in this quiet room, cold but quiet, we're well aware of our need for you. We're well aware of what it is you're doing in our lives, at least to the extent extent to know that your spirit is drawing us deeper and more meaningfully into a more real relationship with you. And in that, God, we want today to surrender to the move of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We recognize Nothing is more important to you than our relationship with you. And because nothing is more important, we recognize that all of your functions operate from that perspective, that objective, that goal to draw us to that real, vibrant, flourishing ministry with you, to walk with you, to know you and be known. So God, I pray today by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the vehicle of your word that you captivate us now in your word. God, that you would do something beautiful, rich. God, that you would speak as we sung to our hearts. And that you would perform all the surgery you've intended in this time, cut deep as needed. But God, in that, remove anything that is at enmity against you. In deep seat within our own beings, God, a love and a passion and a desire to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. 
So in this time now, may your word burst open and come alive and may we get it. Speak fluent us, God, in a way that we hear and understand and know and embrace and inculcate in our lives. Oh, please, Lord. May you redeem every second. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Did you just turn me off? <laughs> sorry. You know, so anyways, okay. Uh, sorry, that was kind of anyone who's listening that's not in our context will go, what in the world? Uh, anyways, please don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. Don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. In chapter 13, Jesus teaches seven parables. The seven parables that Jesus teaches, four of which are taught from a boat while the crowd stands on the shoreline. As they stand on the shoreline, Jesus teaches of the politic of the church. He tells us that a sower went to sow some seed in the variable of the soils. Wayside, shallow, rocky, thorny, and occupied, and that of good soil as well. And he tells us that there are four basic responses to his word. Then Jesus will teach of a sower who went to sow some seed, but while he slept at night, an enemy came and sowed tares, bad seed. It was not planted by the master, but by the enemy of the master, who planted within the same field bad, harmful dangerous, poisonous seed. The servants who were working the field asked the master, do you want us to pluck up then? As they started to notice this bad seed. His response was interesting. No, don't. Leave him alone. There is a time of reaping, but if you pull it up now, you may pull up good seed by mistake. And that is not a risk I'm willing to take. Then he speaks of the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed for which falls on the ground, though tiny and insignificant in its start, grows disproportionately large. And that would seem great, except it tells us the birds of the air make their nests in its home, in its branches. And that's a concern only because two parables ago, the birds of the air were stealing the seed from the wayside soil. And then he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven, which a woman came and snuck in. She didn't openly, but privately, surreptitiously, because she knew it was wrong, was the idea, until the entire, lev- entire lump was infected. Then Jesus would take them inside after these four, and he would tell them that the kingdom of heaven is more than just a politic. And the politics will always be riddled with problems. That's our first four parables. But then he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that one found and was so precious he gave up everything to purchase the field. And the kingdom of heaven is like a precious pearl, so precious that it would cost him everything. But in desire for that precious pearl, the merchant would be willing to trade everything for that pearl. And finally, a final of the seven parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Where the simple, you drag the net 
that's its type, that's its name. You pull in all the fish and then you let the master separate the good fish from the bad. Of the first four, we speak of that of which is political and there is a political mess. But then he speaks of that which is private and personal. The reason why I gave my life to Christ was not because the church was so dang awesome. I gave my life to Christ because of Jesus. And anything outside of Jesus will be at least littered with some form of margin of error. But Jesus never fails. He's perfect. You'll never have to concern yourself with any imperfection in regards to Jesus. But then when you get inside and you meet with him personally, you see you are the treasure. You are the pearl. And don't you ever forget how utterly fantastic magnificent and extraordinary you are. For us to bag on ourselves and tell people how stupid, dumb, unappealing, unwanted we are is to spit in the face of the one who died to purchase us. And we'll see that here in our text. What Matthew then does, brilliantly, because as a Jewish person, Matthew being originally Levi is his name, as he does as a classic Hebrew mindset would, teach then and draw to life, if you will, he sort of dissects and develops those particular parables through real life events that take place in the life of Christ. Now, you can miss it because we're not trained to look that way. But for a Middle Eastern mind, this stuff would be very simple to pull out. The very next thing we read then, moving then from chapters 13 and 14, is that we move from these four soils, the wayside to the shallow rocky soil, the thorny soil to the good soil. We see Jesus rejected in Nazareth like the wayside soil, where the seed bounces off but never ever goes below the surface. Then we see Herod's response to John the Baptist, though hearing him willingly never really responds. And when persecution and pressure comes on, he caves and has John the Baptist beheaded, much like the shallow, rocky soil that Jesus speaks of in the parable. Then Jesus afterwards is brought before 5,000. And as he's brought before 5,000, he goes to his disciples and says, let's feed them. And in the same way, we see the cares and the worries of the world as we saw in the third soil type. But then Peter, in faith, will step out on the water to follow Jesus. And again, we'll see a good soil. And I see how that parable is developed. Interesting, the next parable, I remind you, is the one where Jesus says that a man went and he sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept, an enemy came and sowed bad seed. It was not sowed by the master. It was sowed by the enemy, for which then the the servant said, do you want us to pluck it up? And he said, no, 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 no. I don't want to risk tearing up good soil or good seed here. Wait till the harvest. This will be taken care of. I don't know if you noticed when we read through our text. But if we look at our text, look at verse 13, as if Matthew were making sure that we're not missing it. He says in verse 13, as Jesus answers the people, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. And it makes you wonder, where do you think Jesus was pulling from to say that? From that second parable. Don't worry, they will be uprooted. And notice he says, just like the master in the second parable, leave them alone. I find it interesting because then if I'm going to apply this text to Jesus' parable, well, that's pretty simple then. What I find is is that Jesus is applying the religious order of its day 
to the bad seed planted in the field that was really not planted by the master, but rather by the enemy himself. And that's a scary thought. Because what that means is the most organized, structured, inculcated, if you will, into society, the most prominent religion of a theocratic world around Jesus was actually not even planted by God. So what is it? As Jesus would move us from that to the next parable where the structure itself becomes so big and out of touch that the very seed stealers make their home in it. Well, we'll see it here and in the following text as we see a Syrophoenician woman approach Jesus as if she were Jewish, but she isn't. And Jesus will have to weed that out of her so that she could learn that she could come as she is. Now, there's one more text in regards to this. This particular story we read here in our first 20 verses is also accounted for in Mark chapter 7. And we will, and I'll bounce back and forth a little bit because there's a little extra information I think would be helpful. We read this then in 15 verse 1, that the scribes and the Pharisees were, who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. Now, that's important to note because that's an 85-mile trek up to Capernaum in the right area where Jesus is. Jesus is skirting the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And with that, it isn't like they could take a train or even a bike. I mean, at this point, they're either going to be riding an animal or they're walking 85 miles to go and deal with Jesus. Because apparently, in the middle of nowhere, in the sight of the religious order of its day, there is a problem, and that problem has gained such momentum and traction, it really needs to be dealt with. But the problem, oddly enough, is God in the flesh. And God in the flesh, when God in the flesh becomes a problem to the religious order, which, two, which one of those two things do you think has to change? God is walking among those making claim to represent him, and they're going to ultimately have him killed. That tells me how far religion can get without him. Now, from the side of the world around us, religion really is a very simple cocktail. It's just two things. It's tradition and politics. You put the two together, and basically, in the eyes of the most of the unsaved world, that's basically the way they view religion. It's not intended to be that way. Religion is supposed to mean devoted. And for that sake, I would like to say we should be the most religious people on the planet. And I'm so tired of giving up words. If someone asks if you're religious, just tell them yes, but redefine it properly. In this text now, they are obviously troubled and they've made the trek 85 miles out of, if you will, out of London and made themselves in the middle of some place where nobody really, like little snoring. And they've kind of pulled off into some distant little area where really most of the people can't even read. And the language was so slaughtered in the mindset of the Jewish, uh, the people who lived in Jerusalem, that nobody from the Galilee region, I mean, we're talking the entire borough, if you will, none of the people there were allowed to do a benediction in Jerusalem because they slaughtered the language so much, it was considered blasphemy for them to actually even pray a prayer in a synagogue. Of the 365 or six different synagogues in Jerusalem, if you were from Galilee, it was kind of like in some places in, in America, where if you talk like this, we just assume you're probably not very smart. I don't assume that. I know some very intelligent people, very brilliant people who speak like that, but they're sort of a prototype, if you will, or, a, or if you will, a, sort of a, a stereotype that comes with that. Well, that was the idea of those of Galilee. So for these religious leaders to go and make their way up there, that's quite an interesting trek. Now, what tells us in Mark in our countertext, in Mark 7, 2, hear me on this, it says, now when some of the, the disciples began to eat bread with defile, that was with unwashed hands, these particular religious leaders found fault. And he tells us why. 
The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. It isn't just about washing your hands. It's about washing your hands the way they do. There is a tradition for washing your hands. Don't you break that tradition. And it says not only that, but they hold the traditions of the elders by doing so. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things in which they've received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels, and my favorite, couches. Now, I'm not too sure what couches were made of entirely, but the idea of having a ceremonial washing for your couch, I, I think the best part about that is you just might find some change if you wash hard enough. Now, the only reason I say that is it had gotten to the point where every single aspect of your life now was structured not by a council, even that's scary enough, but by a tradition. And of course, we could look at that as sort of a Calvary Chapel. We're contemporary. We kind of do things fresh and new. Or do we? What about our traditions? Why do we sing at the beginning? What is communion really? Why does a guy teach for so long? We're breaking other traditions to create our own. Oh, here, we don't wear ties. Or do we? Would a person be welcome if they did? Or would we snip it at the door? You know, there are certain churches, of course, wearing a hat. Oh, Hugo and I would be in big trouble. You know, you know, they'd be looking and going, what's up with you? Okay, you're clearly blaspheming God by that. For some, your hair is too short or too long. Some don't like facial hair. Some churches, you know, you wouldn't feel comfortable unless you came in with tattoos. You would draw them on your arm on the way in just to pretend. So because someone doesn't give you that strange look. We have our own traditions, too. The question is, are traditions in and of themselves bad? Well, what Jesus is going to say here is that traditions have replaced Scripture. And there's where the problem is. I mean, what if your tradition is getting on your face before God humbly and asking him to really reveal his will? That sounds like a great tradition. What if your tradition was opening up God's word and expecting him to teach you? That sounds like a great tradition. Here is the problem, and please hear me. There's a difference between the heart and the practice. And the problem is, is that somewhere down the line, because we as people are given to this second law of thermodynamics, to entropy, to where order goes to disorder. And the way that order goes to disorder, strangely enough, is we see comfort. And we find comfort in the familiar. So we do something and we think it's good, so let's keep doing it. But as we keep doing it, we get familiar with the practice of it versus the purpose of it. And so what happens is, unfortunately, we tend not to make traditions of our purposes, but we do tend to make traditions out of our practices. And when I start to realize that, I realize almost every tradition or most traditions that I have found really started with a great heart. But they moved from that heart to where the practice took precedence instead of the purpose. And that's the danger here. Now, we'll have, I mean, here's the funny part for us. We might have a a tradition here within the next few months of actually coming in in parkas because the church is never heated anymore. And then what will happen is God may move us to this warm place and then we'll all sit there and be sweating our brains out because traditionally we wear parkas at our church. I mean, see how that works? But the purpose has changed. But though the purpose has changed, well, our practice hasn't. And there is the danger. And what Jesus is doing is he's really doing the very thing that James will teach us in, John, in James 1, which is that trials have come often, 
so that our faith, which is of greater value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. The whole idea of sticking you in a fiery trial is to burn off, or if you will, to smelt off the impurities. And what happens is we go and now look at, we believe in the power of prayer. I'll be honest with you. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of the one we're praying to. Because if the power is in prayer, you could pray to the pillar. You go, hey, I still say the same prayer. Prayer is a good thing. And look, I'm not trying to get weird. I'm actually trying to start stripping off of the things that we say that we get so caught up in. Look at, there is great power in prayer, but it's the person, it's the purpose and the one you're seeking. There's the danger. And so what happens is we could go to a church and unless you speak in tongues, you're not spirit filled. Show me that in scripture. Well, unless, well, we know God's really here because we feel him. Well, clearly, sure, it's great to feel, but you could feel a lot of things that aren't God. And you can certainly manipulate to feel things and still think you're having quite an experience. And unless we side with the unchanging truth of God's word, what we're going to find is, is we're going to give ourselves over and over and over to traditions that Jesus is going to walk in. And somewhere what happens is our traditions will box it in such a way that God doesn't fit in it anymore. And so what happens is you have to wear a robe. Do you not have to wear a robe? Do you have to light incense? Do you not have to light? What if you, I mean, let's face it, there are some churches, they light incense, and it's really traditional. And there are people who really, really encounter God in that experience. And then there are others that are kind of like, oh, that's satanic. I'm not exactly sure how they get there, but I get it. And then there are other guys, it's like they get barefoot and they sit around and read poetry and they light incense and they have an experience. And the only reason I'm saying that is incense is not the issue. Where's the purpose? And if we don't get the purpose, you know what happens is our prayers really do become very lame. And our reading becomes very lame. Because in the end of it all, and what we're going to see is, is that God is always looking at the heart where the purpose is, instead of looking at the practice. Because if your heart's in the right place, practices will fall suit. But you can do all the practices with no heart, and God actually recognizes what that's called. He calls it, a poser. Now, I would say actor. The problem is here we have actors in our fellowship, and I don't want to insult them. But let's just face it. What if what if what the enemy really wanted to do was not just do this full out frontal assault on Christ, full out frontal assault on his church, but rather present a more convenient, more comfortable, unsacrificial counterfeit? Because the worst thing you could do to a person is actually give them a false sense of of security. You would be a greater enemy to let them think they're not dying when they are, especially if it's avoidable. It's giving the keys to your friend, telling them they're not drunk when they are to watch them drive off and die. And that is a much, much greater crime than just offending them with the truth. And I really do believe that's what the enemy wants to do. So think about this. Some of you, this is going to relate perhaps more than others, but think about what it means here because Jesus will call them that. He'll call them hypocrites. Matthew so lists that word as he presents Jesus as our king that the, the term hypocrite or hypocrites is used more in the Gospel of Matthew than two and a half times the rest of the New Testament combined. That tells me something. A hypocrite is just a mask wearer. And in those days, that's an actor. So think it through. First of all, you have a role to fill. Now, 
Maybe you're looking, maybe you have agents, you have somebody that's kind of looking. But in all of it, sooner or later, what you have is there's certain roles you don't want to play, certain roles you will play because they're against your conscience. I love that. But, but in that, ultimately, what happens is you kind of look and you kind of go, yeah, I think I could kind of do that. Or, ooh, this would be exciting. This is so different from me. How exciting it would be. So what do you do? You kind of start crawling into the mind a little bit. You start reading the script and learning the lines so you know what lines to say. You start learning the blocking a little bit. Well, what would it be? You know, so what it would be some kind of quirky thing that I could add to this character, some kind of mannerism so that I know that I'm in character, I'm in role. And so you start learning all of these things so that somewhere down the line when the performance happens, people really do, if you do it right, they really do believe you're the guy or the gal, right? I mean, they really do. I mean, so much so that if you do it well, sometimes it's hard for people to see you as not the person. Back in the Wild West, and that's the areas like where we came from, but much, many years before us. Shakespeare would actually, well, not Shakespeare, he was here, but in regards, they do, the, they do Shakespeare's uh, plays, oddly enough, in the Wild West, which to me doesn't, you know, oh, Romeo, Romeo, we're out there, Rome. And it just doesn't, well, anyways. But in that, if you're familiar with some of them, there is a particular one where there is a character that seems to get away with murder, literally, and his name's Yago. He's a bad guy. But in the Wild West, the danger of being a good Yago is, is that you would get shot at the end of the performance. And several times they're accounted where a guy would actually perform the role so well that people couldn't differentiate between who the real Yago, which didn't really exist, and this guy playing the role. So they just shot the guy because they're like, he got, a, he got away with it. We're not going to get away with it here. All right. You know, and that was kind of the idea. But you know what happens? Somewhere down the line, if you're kind of a method actor where you kind of have to be in that role long enough, you won't just start to actually think you are that. So let's just say that for the moment, oh, let's just play this out, if you will. Dominic's not feeling well, and it's something quite concerning. So he shows up at the doctor's office at his GP, and the GP isn't in. And some guy comes over to him, and, he looks, and, and, and Dominic's like, I've seen you somewhere before. And he's like, yeah. And it turns out that he actually played a doctor on a German television show. And because of that, Dominic is aware of him. And he's like, whoa, I didn't know you were a doctor. Yeah, I've been a doctor for, you know, for however long. And he's like, whoa, 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 let me ask you something. Are you playing a doctor or are you really a doctor? He's like, what's the difference? Oh, the difference is huge. Because there's a difference between learning the lines and actually genuinely being equipped for this. There's a big difference. So here we are in England. Let's not say my wife and I decide we are going to play the role of British citizens. Unfortunately, the government's not going to fall for it. But let's just say, while we're at it, David gets a role, and his role is to play the prime minister. And he does it so well that people look and go, Oh, it's the prime minister! And and he's so happy, but then he shows up at 10 Downing Street. I don't think they're going to let him in. And the reason I say that is just playing the role does not mean you're actually it. And then you come to church. And maybe you came to church and you didn't know Jesus and you didn't really know that's really what it's about. So what do you do? You're analyzing the scene, the stage, and you're kind of checking out what the role looks like and you're learning your lines and you're blocking and you know that's okay, this is when I kneel. Okay, this is when I stand. And then, I mean, the first couple of times it's awkward, right? When you're in one of those places because you're kind of like, okay, there's the women. What do we, okay, fight! No, it wasn't, you know, you're kind of doing, and you kind of figure, okay, man, and then you turn your back and it was, no, don't turn your back on the altar and you're like, oh, okay. All right, I don't know why I'm doing this. And you're running into older people. You, you know, and you're figuring it out. But somewhere down the line, you get a couple months. And when you start looking at the next guy who's newer, poor soul, 
He doesn't know this is when we kneel. You know, and I've been at places where you kind of get to the point where you just know by clock, okay, it's time to kneel. You're not even paying attention. You're like, text, okay, and yeah, okay, and right. You know, and it's like the reason I say this, you learn the lines then. Hallelujah. Woo! Praise the Lord. Yes. I'll pray about it. Which means, I really just don't want to hear any more of this. Please stop. We're done. You know how that is. And we learned the lines. You know what we did? We learned all the practices. But we didn't adapt the purpose. Jesus goes, you guys are so good. Most people really, really believe you are the role you're playing. I mean, they can watch, man, they can watch you guys. And you could cry and you could show great conviction. And you open up the Bible and ooh, you're not reading. You're just going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I feel it, you know, and all this. But it's like, God's like, but all of your performance doesn't mean anything to me. Because in the end of it all, you still know me. And it becomes evident here. Beloved, please hear me in this. God really doesn't want us playing that game. But the enemy really wants us playing that game. Because if we play it hard enough, hey, you can fool me. And you know why you can fool me? Because I'm human and I look at the outside. And because I really, not that I want to be fooled, I really want to believe you are the person you're portraying in regards to that. I really want to believe you're in love with Jesus. I really want to believe that you walk with the convictions you tell. That you really are concerned. And you really love his word and you really love his people and you really want to be used and you really are giving him everything and saying, oh, let's do this at any cost. I really, I want to believe that. So it doesn't take much to fool me because love believes all things and I really want to do that. I want to look at you and go, yeah, come on, let's do this together. And then I look at this and I realize what happens when we're busy sort of protecting our traditions is to follow our Savior. So Jesus goes, you know, let me show you how crazy it's gotten. 500 years after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, there was a collection of verbal traditions we know as the Mishnah. The Mishnah, in the sense of it, was a lot of it really, if I'm going to be honest, seems to me like it was a lot of collections of what people kind of invented and kind of created and, and culminated with after Jesus's, uh, after the birth of Christianity, let's put it that way, to really fight it. I mean, there's some really crazy stuff in there that, in my opinion, takes greater faith than anything that we read about our Savior. And <clears throat> I mean, that, he, that Jesus was the son of a hairdresser from Nazareth that snuck into the Holy of Holies, found out how to say the unpronounceable name of God, cut a slit in his side, wrote it on a piece of paper, stuck it in there, and that's how he did miracles. That takes greater faith, in my opinion. But in that, it's interesting. It does record some of these things. For instance, what Jesus is referring to here. In the Mishnah, Nedarim, by the way, chapter 1, sections 1 and 2, and we'll see the same, by the way, in Nedarim, chapter 3, section 11, it says this. If anyone should say, I mean, how many times have you said that? Whatever may be profited, whatever profit you may have received. And they use this and refer to the sons of Noah. 
uncircumcised, to the Jew, to the family member, even a wife to her husband. Whatever profit you may have, you have received, you could have received, well, it's dedicated to God. And the whole purpose of this, according to the Mishnah, was simply this. If a guy did make this vow, he has to back it up. That was the whole purpose. He said it was dedicated to God. It was dedicated to God. He can't go back on it. So, like, for instance, <clears throat> there you are, and let's say, if I win the lottery, I dedicate it all to God. And then you win the lottery. They're going to come and collect it all. The Pharisees would, because the whole idea of it is, well, according to this, you can't say that and go back on your vow. You vowed to God, and now look at you going back on it. Kind of get the idea. Here's the crazy part. Don't miss this. There is this, this like established nobility even among the disobedient. Because when you take that concept then and you apply it to an unregenerate heart, to a sinful intent, what you find is a loophole, like always. You don't look for loopholes when you have a relationship. I don't look and go, wow, how many times do I have to kiss my wife today? Technically, how, do I, how can I make this as easy on me as possible? That's the scary thing. But don't miss the point of this. <clears throat> what Jesus is doing is going after this, and he'll say in Matthew, or in, in uh, Mark's text, Mark 7, he'll say, listen, you're actually calling things Corbin, and the idea of it's this. The biblical standard is to honor your father and mother. The context, ultimately, as we see it developed in the New Testament, to be honest, is when they're old. It's kind of like, you know, they kind of wiped your high knees when you were kids. Be ready to do it for them when they get older. Ruth, you are hearing that, right? Uh, and you want to make sure they're cared for when they can no longer care for themselves. Honor means to put value. You cannot place value on an older person in a society that isn't going to be governed by God. Because what will happen is it will be selfish, and selfish places are driven by economies. And economies make old people obsolete. It's places where honor still rules and reigns, where older people are actually honored because they have something to offer in their wisdom in the age they've lived. That's the idea, at least. And here's the strange thing. So let's say in a case like this, Daniel has older parents, but we're going to go and Dan, let's say we're going to add 20 or 30 years to this so that that makes more sense. And they're getting way up there. And Daniel, let's just say he is just at this point now, really scored. He owns a couple properties. He's doing very well for himself financially and so forth. And his parents don't have a bed. He's got 13 of them in one of his places. And he looks and goes, oh, I can't give you that. I dedicated that to God. That's like, exactly how are you showing your parents are valuable through that encounter? You've chosen a tradition to break a commandment. And the moment, listen, listen, the moment our practices can be directly head-on confronted by Scripture, our practices need to change. And when someone says, well, you don't understand, I have this drive, or I have this ambition, or I have this appetite, or whatever, and I know Scripture says against it, well, you keep trying to bend Scripture to actually go to your will instead of actually changing your own practices, because that's what really does need to change, because God's Word will never need to change, and it never will. And there's our danger. But don't miss what Jesus is teaching us through this. We, and I'm assuming now, again, here, not the school of hypocrisy, but rather the school of disciples, 
What Jesus is saying in the simplest sense, if we put all of this together, is this. If you dedicate something to me, it's going to be used to bless someone else. That's the simplest thing. You can't say something is dedicated to me and then not use it to help someone else and bring them to me. So, you know, we'll hear people say, well, this is my car, or I'm sorry, this is God's car, or this is God's house, or this is God's television, or this is God's whatever. And we like to be so cavalier about these statements. Well, look at if it belongs to him, it's going to be used to help someone else and bring them to him. Because that's everything in God's mind, everything in God's ambitions revolve around bringing people to him. That's his entire obsession is bringing us to him. And it doesn't matter. God will use cancer. And people go, God won't give me cancer. I think sometimes one of the nicest things God could do is take an unbeliever and give him a slow death. Does that sound mean? Not if the most important thing is for them to come to him. He's giving them more time as they erode. And I know people. We watched a 94-year-old man give his life to Christ where the only word he spoke in a week and a half was amen. Because he was dying slowly of cancer. But God kept him alive long enough for him finally to say yes to him. Now, the only reason I'm saying that, beloved, is if everything within God's mind is to draw you deeper into a relationship with him and to draw a person who doesn't know him into a relationship with him, and then we say, this belongs to God, what do you think it's going to do? It's going to be used to bring other people deeper into a relationship with him. That's the whole purpose. And he goes, you're saying that something's dedicated to God and you're not going to help your parents with it? Because you realize what you just did? You broke the commandment, which according to scripture is punishable by death. And you think that you, in other words, what he's saying in the simple is you've got away with murder. You should be killed for this. Oh, no, not you. So read this text with me one more point, And then we'll kind of start developing this last portion of it. Verse 2, why do you transgress the tradition of the elders, they're saying. They're nailing. And here's the crazy part, and don't miss this. That according to this text, it appears as if. It wasn't that the disciples didn't wash their hands. They just didn't do it their way. But according to those, because of those who held their tradition, as far as they were concerned, because you didn't do it their way, you didn't do it at all. Well, if you don't pray in tongues, you didn't pray. If you don't pray this particular way, you didn't pray. If you don't do this our particular way, our particular bend, our particular tradition, well, then you didn't do it at all. If you didn't get baptized in our church, you, did, you obviously aren't saved. Have you heard that craziness? Imagine, it's like, well, whatever happened to the churches? I mean, if the church started, let's say, in the 1900s, what happened to every person before that? Well, there's a real problem. And they play these games. We could do it too. They play these games. Did you get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because that's the way we do it here. Did you get dunked three times? We dunked three times. One for each. Father, and then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. We do it that way. Hey, that's cool if that's what you want to do. But show me that in Scripture. When you say, well, I found this Scripture, and as long as I torture the evidence long enough, I can get it to confess anything I want. Well, I get the idea. But unless it's really cold, this is the way you do it, I, I, I'm going to go, wait a minute. It's possible, but it's not, it's not going to, it doesn't have to be that rigid. No, we do. We do that. We just don't do it three times, because once you're in the water like that, if you know, as we stand at Brighton, once you go down, you, you, you're going to know it. You know. You're down there long enough for all three. It says, but whatever you say, 
verse 5. Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you might profit, uh, profit or receive from me is a gift to God, then you need not honor his father or mother, because after all, the big thing is your vow. Well, then you've made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. And he says, hypocrites. Isaiah did well prophesy about you, saying the people, oh, they don't have a problem with their mouths. They don't have a problem with their lips. Or they have a real problem with their hearts. And there's the problem. Oh, they're great actors. That's what a hypocrite is. They do great lip honor. They actually say the lines in a way that if we were listening on the radio, we'd really go for it. But the real person, you're in another time zone. So you've auditioned your roles. You know how to play your counterfeit. You've got lost in your method acting. You've learned your lines. You've gotten your motivations. You've learned your body language. You're blocking your timing. You've got it all. But in the end of it all, it just didn't make it. So he says in verse 9, in vain they worship me. The word vain for what it's worth, matin, it means, matin means to no real purpose. You're doing it and it really doesn't do anything. Because you're teaching like scripture, the, the commandments of men. He's quoting from Isaiah 29 here. I mean, if you don't know the difference between scripture and, what we, and what's a practice, what's a distinctive, we're in trouble. And then you die for something that really isn't even in Scripture. You know that whole cleanliness is next to godliness? That seems like it came out of this, doesn't it? Jesus would say in, Matthew, in uh, Mark 7, you, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you keep your tradition. But here's our second and last point in all of this. And then Jesus takes this whole encounter, and if it's anything like you and a bunch of people that were leaders in the government came up to you and it, and it kind of really came down on you, you might want to kind of get away for the rest of the day and just kind of regroup. Oh no, Jesus isn't going to do that. He called the multitude to himself. And he says, no, akuho. Stop everything and listen closely, students. And understand. Suniemi. Put all of this together now. I want you to give me your attention. In other words, Jesus is saying, now open up both ears and give me your full attention because I need to teach from this text. I need to teach from the text of this example. It's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. Jesus will develop that in a moment, but first I've got to say this. Defiles? I mean, in the Old Testament, I kind of get it because in the Old Testament, the term we would use is unclean. If you were unclean, what that meant is you should not be in a public gathering with God's people. I get that. You have oozing sores. You're constantly flowing blood. It's a dangerous thing for you and for others. And in the day that Jesus is writing, or in the day we might say that Leviticus is being written then, 1,400 years prior, he's like, you know, you really need to be aside and get well. If you're a leper, it'd be good for you not to go and get everyone, give everyone leprosy. I get that. What really amazes me is that the term in the New Testament here for defiles is not that word for unclean. It's the word koino, like koine, like koinonia. Koinos means common. Now, don't miss this, beloved, because this is really profound, because what he's telling us is, is that something can happen to make you ordinary, Something could happen to make you common. They go, well, wait a minute. 
If something could happen to make you common or make you ordinary, that must mean that without it, you are, without that, extraordinary, uncommon, unique, brilliant, above that. And I go, whoa, wait a minute here. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. So as we kind of close this up, but don't miss this. You are that jewel, that treasure for which Christ gave everything for to get. You were that pearl so precious that he would give up all of everything else that he possessed just to have you. And if you were the only one, Jesus still would have died on the cross just to have you. You, uniquely. So how could you be ordinary? Through Christ, you died. Raised to newness of life. You're an integral part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the bride of Christ. You've had your sins purged. Your guilt paid. Your death vanquished. You are created now in God's image and His Spirit is conforming you to make you more like Jesus every day. And you are redeemed, blood-bought, delivered, spirit-sealed. How could you be ordinary? You are God's one consuming thought, the sum of his affections, the totality of his kingdom, the precious treasure, the pearl of greatest price, the joy set before Jesus to endure the cross, his beloved, how can you be ordinary? The one who flung the stars in their place and marked the heavens by the expanse of his hand, put you in the center of it, how could you be ordinary? You are extraordinarily loved fearfully and wonderfully made, adopted by the King of Kings, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, God's masterpiece sanctuary and Christ's home and the spirit sanctuary. In all of that, the Holy of Holies, which God chooses to dwell in is you. How can you be ordinary? And yet your speech could make you common. Why would I want my words to portray me as something I am not? Because that's what actors do. The problem is, what we're doing is we are king's people portraying paupers. We are affluent portraying beggars. We are vibrant portraying the ill. And we are thriving portraying dead. Check out how good you can play dead. Wouldn't the enemy just love it if God's army all played dead? How do we play dead? No joy, no hope, no gospel, no word, no love for the lost, no love for each other. We get so convinced. There have been times where Our daughters have, well, one specifically, has been given over to self-loathing. I mean, those moments where, and I would get angry. I'm like, don't you realize you were talking about my daughter that way? Granted, she's talking about herself. But she's still the daughter I love. And we bag on the church, and Jesus goes, that's still my bride. And we bag on ourselves, and God says, that's still my child. And I still, because of my love, according to Ephesians 5, have washed her in my word and I present her before myself holy, spotless, and without blame or blemish or wrinkle before me in love. So stop trying to make her ugly when she's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. 
Stop trying to make her filthy. When she's actually the most pure thing because I've cleansed her with my blood. Stop trying to make yourself so horrible when I'm creating you fantastic. Do you really want to be defiled? Do you really want to be common when you are not created to be common? You are created to be magnificent. And Jesus thinks so. And let me just say, He knows you better than you do. The Father chose to adopt you with nothing to learn about you. You have things to learn. I have things to learn of me. But he chose to adopt me because he wanted me. And I am still his love. And I am still his precious treasure. And I am still the sum of all of his thoughts. He adores me. Doesn't want me running from him. He doesn't want me chasing away from him. He doesn't want me berating myself. What he wants is for me to be consumed in his love. To be quieted in it. So where are you at? Are you all that? See, either I think I'm all that, which is wrong, or I think that I'm all that in Scripture, and then I go, oh, I'm more loved than anything I could create for myself. My God knows me perfectly and wants me. And all of the universe testifies of it if I'm willing to look. And His Word screams it. Jesus looked at these men and said, they just ate without washing the way you told them to and you made them ordinary for it? Don't you even realize what makes you common is not what goes in, but what comes out? Verse 12, let's close this up. The disciples said, don't you realize that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus says, well, listen, if I didn't plant it, it's not going to be here long. And I go, oh, that reminds me of a parable. They're blind. They lead the blind. Don't worry. It'll become evident soon. And you'd say, well, isn't it cruel for the blind to lead the blind into the ditch? If that's what it takes for the blind to seek proper help, that's what he's saying. So Peter, praise God for Peter, because he has this habit, as you know, of sort of stepping up and speaking. He's the drummer of the group. And, <clears throat> and he says, well, could you explain this? I'm not getting it. And Jesus kind of looks, and this is why nobody else said it. And Jesus goes, well, you guys still aren't getting it, huh? Don't you understand? And please hear me on this as we bring this around. What goes in isn't the problem, it's what comes out. Now look at You have a physical body, and Jesus is constantly using the natural items to help us understand the supernatural. So listen to it in the simplest sense. Your mouth is the depot. Your, or I'm sorry, your stomach is the depot. Your mouth is the delivery boy. And your organs are the disposal. In the end of it all, your mouth will deliver whatever is put in it to your stomach. It will be held there to be broken down, processed. As it's processed, that which seems to then, appearingly seems to be good, gets put into your body with the purpose of it then turning into action. The rest of it gets processed through the organs and is eliminated. I get it. But the problem is, spiritually, we have the same things, but they're in different order in that sense. The heart is the depot. The eyes and the ears are the delivery boy, but the mouth is the disposal. 
Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It doesn't just say if it's in your mouth, it falls in your heart, it falls out of your mouth from the abundance. So this is what it kind of looks like. What you take in through your eyes and your ears make its way to the mind and the mind starts processing, but it gets ultimately to the heart. The heart is where the same way it gets processed in a way so that it gets converted to action. And when it overflows, it comes out of your mouth. And if it comes out of your mouth, what's evident at that point is, is that if what comes out of your mouth is bad and full of toxins, that's because your heart is full of toxins. And I want to remind you, the whole point of this is the issue of being ordinary. The issue of not being extraordinary. The issue of being like everyone else. What's everyone else look like? Well, he tells us in verse 19. He says, out of your mouth come evil thoughts. Out of your mouth, evil thoughts. Think that through. How does an evil thought turn into your mouth? It's an evil speech by the time it gets you to your lips. Murders, which Jesus also addressed as bitterness, if you remember back in Matthew 5-7 through on the Sermon on the Mount. Adulteries, fornications, there's sexual sin. Thefts, there's covetousness. False witness, that's lying. Blasphemies, which obviously show. And by the way, blasphemy is making ordinary God. I find that interesting. He chose that as the last of these. He goes, don't you get it? He goes, here's the problem. You've trained your mouth like an actor to say the right lines, but sooner or later, what's going to happen is when you get bumped, it's going to spill out. And when your heart is full, sooner or later, that thing is going to make its way and it's going to fall out of your mouth. You ever have something come out of your mouth and go, ooh, wow, that was nastier than I thought it was? Where did that come from? God's like, from the abundance of your heart. Jesus goes, listen, I don't want you to be ordinary. I don't want you to think of yourself as just one of the... So you go, yeah, well, come on, we have sexual freedom here. God says, stop that. Stop being ordinary. I have something better for you. They're looking for satisfaction in a place they can't meet them there. You should be satisfied. You should be with me. Thefts and covetousness, you'll steal to get what you want, and that's okay. Lying, gossiping, that's okay. Blasphemies and talking bad, I mean, let's face it. When we hear Christ's name, we assume that it's going to be blasphemy if we hear it out there now. We've given up the name of Jesus so that unbelievers can use it. Have you learned that? How do we do that? And he goes, well, it's interesting because they are making ordinary the name of God. Because we're not making it anything. Jesus goes, is that what you want? You want to be ordinary? Or lie around with the rest of the dead people? Because they're spiritually dead. And you're a masterpiece. God's poema. His masterpiece. The heavens, those cool creatures in the sea, the mountains, the seas, everything. Nothing compared to the greatest masterpiece of God. And that is you. So what are you trying to do? What are we filling our hearts with? So we take this church, this beautiful, magnificent, cold, grant you, but, but beautiful church, and we turn it into a waste treatment center. We turn it into a dump. All we have to do is just fill it full of rubbish. All we have to do is put waste in here, and the same beautiful building turns into a dump. Building still looks the same on the outside. So, you can still make it look good on the outside, but inside, it's rotten. 
And you are that sanctuary. What are you filling it with? See, what's coming out of your mouth defiles you because it sows just like with an open running sore or with a bleeding issue. According to Leviticus, those things make you unclean because what happens is the moment it comes out of you, it starts getting on someone else. But the idea of somebody that is unwell is you want to pull them aside so they can get well because you would think that their desire for fellowship would be so strong that they would be so committed to wanting to be a part of it that they would not want to be gone long. So they want to be here. They want to be drawn and they want to be there. And by wanting to be, the idea is whatever it is that's keeping me out needs to be dealt with so I can get back to where I belong. There's the idea. And and Jesus is going, that's the problem. It's coming out of your mouth. The moment it comes out of your mouth, it gets on other people. And when it gets on other people, it becomes contagious. And you're complaining because someone else is complaining. Your lies become someone else's lies. And boy, have we seen that. And your blasphemies become other people's blasphemies. And your adulteries become other people's adulteries. It's amazing how contagious these things are. And he goes, the problem is, is you, need to get around, you need to get out and get right. And once you get right, come back in. Because this is where you belong. Planted like you should be. And in that understand, Jesus is looking. And on this day where we go to the table of the Lord in communion, wow, shouldn't he be able to do some good heart changes with us? That sounds to us like what we really need tonight, today is heart surgery. We can look and go, oh God, if there's anything that is within me, and because it's so filthy here, I've learned to become an actor here to portray something that I'm not. And here's the crazy thing. I am actually an extraordinary thing that I've poured horrible, unextraordinary things into so I could pretend to be an extraordinary person that I actually am. But in between the two is this filth. This pretending to be a church building while it's filled with stuff that's rotten. There's a place down in Tottenham Court Road. Our Charing Cross Road, some of you are familiar with that, was a church, uh, an old uh, Welsh Presbyterian, I believe. And it became like a club for a long time that was apparently a horrible, horrible thing. It's like it still had the building, it still has the shell. But imagine pretending, pretending to be a church while all that was happening. Well, it's us, if we're not careful. And then what happens is, our pretending to be awesome in Christ becomes a tradition and our practices become so solid, so ingrained, well, that we actually forget the purpose altogether. We forsake it. But you've probably heard it said, the only difference between a rut and a grave is how deep you dig. So I want to pray this for us right now. Get back to the purpose. The purpose of Jesus. Because his purpose is drawing you to a right relationship with him. That's his purpose. And today, I don't want any one of us going to the table of the Lord without getting that right. But I want every one of us going to the table of the Lord. So we're going to have a moment of quiet. And then we're going to have a moment of prayer. But I want the Lord just to kind of in this time, just speak to us personally and let him ingrain these things in our heart. And then we're going to pray. So just take a moment alone and quiet with the Lord right now, would you please? Lord,
please forgive us for what we've been more interested in portraying the person that we really should be than being the person we should be. We recognize the activities may seem the same, but the difference is the position of our hearts. Where the focus shouldn't be on our performance, but rather on the person we are seeking to please. And that's you. We pray today for every one of us that you would right now speak perfectly to us. Dig deep. And pull out of our hearts all of the toxins, all of the pollution, all of the filth, And so that we could live the extraordinary life you call us to. Not to walk ordinary, but to live the kind of life that reflects the infinite, perfect, invincible, omnipotent, almighty God. And you love us and you want us and you paid for us and redeemed us and washed us and cleansed us and filled us and sealed us, empowered us, gifted us, transformed us, reinvented us. Don't let us forget who's doing the work. The greatest artist that has and will ever be. So forgive us for where we fight you. Where you're trying to make us something beautiful, but we're busy trying to make us something cool in the sight of others. In the simplest sense, we're busy trying to make ourselves ordinary. But a little cooler among the ordinary. We shouldn't expect to blend in, fit in. And thus, fellowship is so important because here in this room, we're reminded that there's a new society, one where we are all called to be extraordinary together. So here in this room right now, Lord, speak to our hearts. Would you confess, Father, that you so loved us that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us? Because we are that jewel. We are that treasure. And he did that for our sins. You sent him for our sins because nothing is more important than our relationship with you. And as he died on the cross, our bills were paid. Our guilt was punished. And just like scripture promised, after being buried on the third day, he rose again. And on that third day, he shows us there's a brand new life now, the life of the extraordinary adventure you set before us. Lord, now lead us in such a thing. Get our eyes off of ourselves and on you where they belong and show us how loved and cared for we are. Lord, I know that if there be any here within the sound of this voice that have not accepted the gift of Jesus, where this all starts, it's a prayer away. Show them through your Holy Spirit that gift. As it's been said, Jesus' death on your behalf 
his resurrection to offer you new life. And if that's you, here's the simple prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, I ask you to give a confident amen. And this is it. God, I'm a sinner. Just like men are sinners, I'm a sinner. And you punish sin. But you so love me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that my sin could be properly punished without me spending eternity away from you. He died, was buried, and just like your scripture promised, on the third day rose again. And I say yes to Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and I ask for you now to give me, to let me live that magnificent life you intend for me to have. As I hand myself to you now, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to give a confident Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. Fill us with that joy of your presence and that excitement for what you're going to do even here. In Jesus' name, amen.